Hi, I'm Matt Salis, and I want to welcome you to another edition of the Intoxicated Podcast. Today's episode is week two of the Shout Sobriety Program, the podcast associated with week two. Uh, for those that are not in the Shout Sobriety Program and might have just stumbled upon uh, this episode of the Intoxicated Podcast in another way, let me just explain. We have launched a six-week online sobriety program, early sobriety program. It's called Shout Sobriety. And this podcast episode is the introduction to the topics for week two. And the reason that we've made it public and not hidden it behind a password protected wall is because we want people to stumble on it, hear what we have to say, maybe wet their whistle a little bit and think, I need to look into this more deeply. If you're one of those people and you'd like more information on Shout Sobriety, please go to shoutsobriety.com and check us out. If you'd like to enroll, we'd love to have you. On to the topic for this week. This is one of my, what I, one of, what I think is one of the most important topics about finding a path to long-term sobriety, at least the path that I found. Um, it's, it's relatively new. Uh, the topic is brain chemistry. And it incorporates the science of the last decade or so, what we've learned about what is really the final frontier of biology, and that is the brain. This is stuff that wasn't available 80 years ago when the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written. I often, in my writing and in my talking, I am critical of Alcoholics Anonymous, but let me just be really clear. I think it was a great program for the time that it was written. I think that it's, I know that it saved millions of lives. I think that it still serves a great purpose and is a great resource for a lot of people. But there's just plain things that are missing. If you wanted to learn about mathematics and you asked Nellie Olson's math teacher to teach you everything she knew, you'd learn different stuff than you'd learn from a math teacher trained in the 21st century. And that's kind of part of how I look at the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. We've just learned a lot in the last 80 years, and brain chemistry is certainly one of those topics. So uh, it's a really important, necessary piece of information for me to maintain my long-term sobriety. I'm one of those people who, if something is ailing me, uh, not, not necessarily a cold or, you know, if I've got a splinter or whatever, I don't, I don't need to know the ins and outs of something minor. But if something long-term and debilitating is causing me problems, I don't just want to understand what the cure is. I want to understand how I came down with the affliction to begin with. So understanding what's going on in our brain chemistry when we suffer from alcoholism has just been huge for me, not only for the success of my sobriety, but just for my sanity. It does a lot of good to remove the shame and the blame that's associated and the stigmatization of the disease when I understand what really happened to, to have me contract the disease and what was necessary for me to, to fix myself. So in my head, the way I 
view the topic of brain chemistry, I organize it into two components. Uh, generally speaking, I would consider one component to be neurotransmitters and the other component to be the subconscious mind. So let's talk first a little bit about neurotransmitters. I think just for simplicity's sake, I'm going to stick with dopamine as the neurotransmitter that we talk about today. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is um, part of the reward system in our brain. When we feel pleasure, um, dopamine is released, and that signals us to feel to to feel the pleasure that's associated with whatever happened that should make us feel good. So let me give an example. That'd probably be the best way to do this. If we are acknowledged at work for having done something great, or if one of our children gets an A on a test, or if the sports team that we enjoy watching wins a game. These are little common everyday occurrences that should make us feel pleasure. And when our dopamine, when our reward system and our neurotransmitters are functioning properly, that's exactly what happens. Those things feel good to us. For many of us who have gone through addiction, the neurotransmitter system gets hijacked by alcohol in our brain. And the the way I understand it, the way I explain it to people, is that drinking alcohol, along with the other things that I mentioned, and many more things in our lives, bring us pleasure. And when we drink alcohol heavily... Every time we experience the pleasure of drinking alcohol, a little bit of dopamine gets released. Part of our body's job, part of our brain's job, is to work to reach an equilibrium. And part of our brain attempting to reach that equilibrium is limiting the overall dopamine release. So if we begin to associate pleasure with alcohol and our brain gets used to looking for that alcohol trigger to release the dopamine, it starts to reserve the dopamine for the alcohol trigger and won't release it for other things because it's not healthy for our brain to flood itself with dopamine. So you have these everyday pleasures. You eat a dessert that you really like or you go dancing with your spouse or something great happens with your kids. That should elicit a feeling of pleasure. But when we are heavy drinkers, Our brain, we teach our brain basically not to release any of the dopamine until we uh, provide alcohol to the brain. So that makes life a pretty depressing place. And that is exactly what happened with me. It got to the point where nothing would bring me pleasure except for drinking. And as my alcoholism, which as we all know is a progressive disease, as it continued to progress along, that got kind of double-edged sword, both edges of the sword being sharp and dangerous, Um, I would drink the alcohol so that I could get that pleasure reward, but then at the same time, the alcohol is what was causing depression for me. So really, it it was hurting me in, in a lot of different ways. Little life pleasures that should feel great, um, the ones that I described a bit ago, no longer brought me pleasure. And the only thing that did bring me pleasure also came along with a backside of some really debilitating depression and anxiety and just overall pain. So the the best term that I've heard to describe what happens with the neurotransmitters in our brain is the word hijack. You, your 
alcohol consumption really hijacks the release of the dopamine and the proper function of our neurotransmitter reward system. Um, it's very common. It's not very well known, however. And that's one of the real tragedies of the way we treat addiction in this country at this point in our history. There, The scientists know about this stuff, and a few uh, recovery warrior brain chemistry nerds like me learn about it, but it's not a part of many treatment programs. It's starting to become more commonly associated with kind of new wave treatment programs, but it, it, it's essential, and it, it's something that must be understood um, because it brings great comfort to those of us who suffer from alcoholism just to know the source of our affliction, the source of the pain that we're going through, to know why uh, a beautiful summer morning when you don't have responsibilities and you can enjoy uh, taking a walk through your neighborhood, why that doesn't bring you any pleasure when it should, why a, a T-bone steak cooked to perfection no longer brings you pleasure, why life becomes dull and dreary and gray. It's important to understand why that's happening. In the second week of the Shout Sobriety program, um, one of the big reading assignments is going to be reading um, a book by a woman named Annie Grace called This Naked Mind. And Annie does a really good job of explaining the, the brain chemistry and how it works. And the big thing that Annie does is she teaches us to consider alcohol to be a poison. When we look at the way alcohol hijacks our reward system, we should be angry about that. That should not... We, we should go from saying, gosh, I wish I was a normal drinker and I could drink two drinks and then walk away from them. We should trans, transition from that opinion to alcohol is bad for me in any quantity. And just because I couldn't control how much I drank does, shouldn't make me jealous of people who can. I should vilify and be afraid of and want nothing to do with alcohol in any quantity. So rather than wishing that I could be a normal drinker, I'm pretty glad I'm an excessive drinker and that I've made the decision to cut alcohol out of my life altogether. That's a really important decision to make, distinction to make on a conscious level. I know that there are people in my life that are more in control of their drinking, and there were certainly times toward the end of my active alcoholism where I was jealous of those people. I wished I could be like them. I wished I could um, have two drinks and then move on to something else or... Or, uh, you know, just drink at a pace that didn't become excessive and didn't take over my life. I wished I could be like them in that I could spend my day not thinking about when my next drink was going to be or not having regret for when my last drink was. Well, that jealousy is over and it's really, really, I can't emphasize enough how important that is for my uh, long-term sobriety. Now, frankly... This sounds a little bit arrogant, and I, I feel a little bit guilty for feeling this way, but the people in my life who I used to be jealous of for the control they had over their alcohol consumption, I actually pity them a little bit. When I see someone having a couple, two, three drinks a day and um, thinking that, that that's fine and that's an acceptable way to go through life and that because there's no outward signs of calamity uh, as a result of their drinking that this is a... This is the American way, and this is something that should be continued on into the future. 
I feel sad because I know that even though their brain was not affected to the extent that mine was by their alcohol consumption, it's a poison. And it's that that little, whether you get a great euphoric feeling like I did from drinking alcohol, or you get just a little buzz, a little warm and fuzzy, that's coming because your brain function is being interrupted. Your brain function is being ever so slightly damaged. That's what gives you the buzz feeling. I mean, we all know that you can't stick your nose to the tailpipe of a car uh, and suck in a bunch of times. And if you do, that, that that kind of that buzzy feeling you get, we all know how damaging and distressful that is and, and potentially deadly, certainly. It's the same thing with alcohol. Just because you get a little buzz and you do that three or four or five or six days a week, um, that doesn't mean it's okay. You you are damaging the way your brain works, even if in a slight way over time those things add up. I think there are a lot of people in our society that have anxiety that they have to deal with, mild depression that they have to deal with, stress that they have to deal with that really is a direct result of what we call, quote, normal drinking in the society. And if they cut the drinking out altogether, the brain function would return to at least near normal eventually. A couple of things to say about that return to near normal. I don't believe that my brain function will ever return fully to normal. I believe that the the learning that my brain did, the hijacking of the neurotransmitters, that knowledge will stay in there forever. And there's evidence to support that. There are lots of cases of people who have quit drinking for extended period of periods of time. One of the people that I've studied extensively is Robin Williams. He quit drinking for 20 years. And when he decided it was okay for him to go back and start drinking again, he immediately, like that same week, went right back to the old patterns of drinking, the old blackout drunkenness. Everything was as if the 20 years of sobriety hadn't existed. So I believe that our brains retain the knowledge of what to do with alcohol, how to use it to hijack our reward system. And that just lays dormant for as long as we stay sober. But if we ever drink again... Um, that ugly monster is going to jump right back up and be in the same dangerous condition that it was when we when we stopped drinking. Um, so I don't believe, again, that my, my brain is ever going to go back to fully normal. I also believe that I have used up all of my tokens for mistreatment of my mind and body. What I mean by that is... I think that our bodies have a tolerance for us to eat like crap and to not get enough sleep and to drink alcohol. But I believe that when you develop alcoholism, and in my case, I was a heavy drinker for 25 years, when you put your body through that, when you put your mind through that, um, your, your tolerance to manage um, other ways of abusing our bodies, it's all used up. So, I need to get enough sleep. I need to get seven, eight hours of sleep a night. Like, period. I can't, like I used to be able to, I can't not sleep enough. And then when I start to get weary in the afternoon or evening, have a couple beers and it'll pep me right up. That doesn't exist anymore for me. So, sleep has become ultra important for me. Likewise, I need to eat the right balanced diet. Um, Sugar 
is treated in our brains in very much the same way that alcohol is. They share the same neuropathway. So think of it as though you've cut grooves in your brain for how the neurotransmitters should flow um, by drinking alcohol excessively for years. When we cut the alcohol out, those grooves are still there. And guess what fits in the same groove? Sugar does. So when I go off the rails because I'm having a hard time or haven't gotten enough sleep or something's stressing me out and I eat a bunch of sugar that I normally would try to avoid, it sends me into a depression. And the way the science has been explained to me, it's because that sugar is flowing down that same exact grooved neural pathway that the alcohol cut for it. And it's leading to the same place, the same um, reward system hijacking, the same depression, the same anxiety. So I can now, even though alcohol is behind me, I can stimulate or simulate the uh, depression effects of alcohol by consuming a lot of um, a lot of carbs, uh, simple carbs, and like white flour stuff, and a lot of sugar. So that's stuff I've got to avoid. And when I do, I mean, I don't have necessarily a scientific study to show you, but I've got my life, and I can tell you that. In times where I have broken down and, you know, said a bowl of ice cream sounds like a good dinner to me, I pay for it the next day. And when in times where I, you know, I'm not perfect, far from it, but when I try to keep to what would be considered a a pretty healthy diet and I get enough sleep, I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. The uh, alcohol-induced or sugar-induced or um, exhaustion-induced depression, it isn't there. So it's really important for me to stay on track in that way. The other part of the brain chemistry discussion is about the subconscious mind. And when I first learned about this, this was a little much for me to take. Annie Grace talks a lot about it in her book that I referenced, This Naked Mind. But the more I read, I reread, I thought about it, I saw references to it in other places besides just one book. I started to realize that that this is really important stuff. The idea is, I mean, if you think about it for a minute, your subconscious mind is powerful and it is all pattern driven. The things that we do on a routine basis, our bodies expect us to do those things at the same time. The body clock is a great example. How many of you um, wake up about 30 seconds before your alarm goes off in the morning? That's because your body knows that that's the time you get up and it's used to it and it it, you don't, in many ways, even need the alarm to wake you up. Um, That's why we get hungry at regular intervals. When we're used to eating our lunch, we start to get hungry. When we're used to eating our dinner, we start to get hungry. Um, And the subconscious mind just controls so many things. All the involuntary functions like keeping our heart beating and keeping our breath breathing and our eyelids blinking. These aren't things you ever think about. But yet they happen. And if you really stop and think about all the things that our subconscious controls below the level of our awareness, I mean, our brains are really just unbelievably powerful instruments. So it should be no surprise when we groove alcohol into our lives and and we get used to drinking at a regular interval. For, For many people that drink on a daily basis, that's every evening, right, after work. So when that time rolls around 5 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the evening and you're used to pouring that first drink, your subconscious mind, it doesn't give a rip 
what you've decided to do with regard to alcohol. It doesn't care about willpower. Your subconscious doesn't care how determined you are or how many times you've quit unsuccessfully and how important it is to you going forward. Your subconscious doesn't care that you know about neurotransmitters. It doesn't care that that you've got family members that are begging you to quit. It doesn't care that you've determined that your anxiety and depression comes from alcohol. When your witching hour rolls around, which again, for many of us, it's five or six o'clock at night when the workday is done and it's time to relax, your subconscious is screaming for you to deliver the alcohol that it's used to. It's just part of the pattern. Your body has begun to associate alcohol, the consumption of alcohol, with a survival instinct. It's part of what we do to live. So hey, it's, it's the witching hour. It's time for alcohol. If I'm going to survive, I need it. So give it to me. And that subconscious mind that controls all these involuntary functions and runs on these routines is, is way more powerful than our willpower or our desire to control things. So when we are in early sobriety, one of the biggest challenges we face is finding the patience to let our routine change and let the time pass with our new routine so that our subconscious mind gets used to the new routine and says, hey, I no longer crave alcohol at 6 o'clock at night. Now I crave, in, in my case anyway, sitting down and reading a book. Because that's what I did. Um, last week was all about bibliotherapy. And the, the point of the bibliotherapy for me was that craving would hit. It's time for me to go get a beer or pour some vodka. And instead of doing that, I'm going to sit down and read this book that is soothing to me and helps me get over that hump. Well, in the beginning, it's to help you get over that hump. Eventually, it becomes part of your routine. Your new plan for the evening is to do something relaxing. And it doesn't have to be reading forever. It can be taking a walk. It can be, you know, watching the news. It can be having a conversation with your spouse or another family member or a friend. But the point is, the pattern has to have the time to change. And man, let me tell you, it takes a long time. I've read studies. I've read a lot of people who key on this 90-day point. They say the 90-day point is um, the amount of time it takes for any routine to change and the new routine to take over. For me, it was a lot longer than that. Certainly, the craving started to ease up after the 90-day point. But for me, all of the kind of peace and serenity that I found in sobriety started to have impactful, measurable, um, lasting results or, or um, you know, potency in my life at the one-year mark. And I know that's awfully scary. If you're, if you're new in early sobriety and you're fighting cravings on a daily basis multiple times a day, probably the last thing you want to hear me say is that it took me a year for my subconscious to adjust to the new routine. But you got to keep in mind, I drank heavily for 25 years. And for most of that 25 years, it was daily. Not always. Sometimes the rules that I put around my drinking kept me from drinking in the middle of the week. Um, but for the most part, for those 25 years, I was, a, I was a daily drinker. So that is some serious pattern grooving, some serious routine. And getting out of that routine and changing it to something more healthy, it just takes a lot of time. So I, I think that there's good news and bad news in that. It's scary to think of, of going a year before your pattern's going to change. But 
I think understanding what's going on in the background, for me anyway, was just wildly helpful because I had tried so many times, more than a half dozen times I had tried to quit drinking and I'd reached this extended period of sobriety, six months, I made it to nine months once and I still wasn't feeling good. I was still still battling depression. I was still battling cravings. And, you know, in the cases where I made it six or nine months, I would eventually relent and go back to drinking because I just just assumed that if I could do something for nine months and nothing was going to change, it would never change. So I said, I might as well drink. Even though drinking comes with depression and it comes with a crappy marital relationship, um, at least I get some comfort from it. And if, if... I'm never going to get away from these bad feelings. Uh, Drinking was kind of the lesser of the two evils. Little did I understand that when we've done this much damage to our brains, it it takes, again, in my case, a year for the, uh, the patterns to change and the relief to come. So, um... So again, good news and bad news. You understand what's going on. Bad news, man. You're going to have to hang on tight for quite a while before it gets better. But I I do wish you luck and I hope you find that peace eventually. Um, So that's really the topic for this week. It's brain chemistry. Um, The reading, a big chunk of the reading is the book that I referenced, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. There's also some blog posts that I'd love you to read about my experience with with brain chemistry. Um, Like like I'm going to say a lot of times in this program because this stuff means so much to me, this is one to take seriously and really spend some time with. It changed my life. It changed my life. This brain chemistry topic is what got me over the hump from just struggling and white-knuckling to really being on the road to recovery. And I certainly hope that it, hope that it can do the same thing for you. Um, if you're part of the program, you've got my email. I look forward to our our weekly phone conversations and text correspondence. Reach out with any questions or any feedback or any, if you've had kind of an aha, um, inspirational moment and you want to share that as you're going through the reading, I'd love to hear about it. Just remember, uh, this road to long-term sobriety, it, it's a long one. It's, uh, it, it's a lot of hard work, but it's definitely worth it at the end. And we're all in this together. So thanks for listening to week two of the Shot Sobriety program on the Untoxicated podcast, and I look forward to talking to you again soon.